when it comes to ensuring your company has top-notch security practices. Things can get complicated fast. With Vanta, you can automate compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, HIPAA, and more. Vanta's market-leading trust management platform can help you unify security program management with a built-in risk register and reporting and streamline security reviews with AI-powered security questionnaires. Over 7,000 fast-growing companies like Atlassian, Flow Health, and Quora use Vanta to manage risk and prove security in real time. You can watch Vanta's on-demand video at vanta.com slash decoder to learn more. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash decoder. Support for this show comes from Wix Studio. Designers and devs, you might be able to do your thing better on Wix Studio, a web platform with everything you need to deliver bespoke sites hyper-efficiently. Design teams get a ton of smart features that can take the grind out of web creation without it costing per-pixel control. Dev teams, you get a zero-setup, developer-first environment, combined with an AI code assistant and your preferred IDE for rapid deployment. Search Wix Studio today to explore the full range of features. Hello and welcome to Decoder. I'm Neil Patel, Editor-in-Chief of The Verge, and Decoder is my show about big ideas and other problems. I co-hosted the Code Conference last week, and today's episode is one of my favorite conversations from the show. Microsoft CTO and EVP of AI, Kevin Scott. If you caught Kevin on Decoder a few months ago, you know that he and I love talking about technology together. I really appreciate that he thinks about the relationship between technology and culture as much as we do at The Verge. And it was great to add the energy from the live code audience to that dynamic. Kevin and I talked about how things are going with Bing and Microsoft's AI efforts in general now that the initial hype wave has subsided. I really wanted to know if Bing was actually stealing users from Google. Kevin also controls the entire GPU budget in Microsoft, and access to GPUs is a hot topic across the AI world right now, especially access to NVIDIA's H100 GPUs, which is what so many of the best AI models run on. Microsoft itself runs on H100s, but Kevin is keenly aware of that dependency. And while he wouldn't confirm any rumors about Microsoft developing its own chips right now, he did say a switch from NVIDIA to AMD or other chip vendors would be seamless for Microsoft's customers if the company ever does make that leap. I also asked Kevin some pretty philosophical questions about AI. Why would you write a song or a book when an AI is out there making custom content for other people? Well, it's because Kevin thinks the AI is still terrible at it for now, as Kevin has found out firsthand trying to use some of these tools. But he also thinks that creating is just what people do, and AI will help more people become more creative. Like I said, this conversation got deep. I really like talking to Kevin. Okay, Microsoft CTO, Kevin Scott. Here we go. I could talk about literally anything with Kevin. Uh, he's a maker, he's a, you're a renaissance. We were talking about crimping Ethernet cables before we walked out on stage, like literally anything. But we gotta talk about AI. So I wanna just ask, from the beginning, Microsoft kicked off a huge moment in the AI rush with the announcement of Bing, the integration of OpenAI into, into the products. There's obviously co-pilots. How is that going? Has the integration of AI into Bing led to a market share gain, led to increased usage? 
Yeah, for for sure. Uh, uh, it, it's you know small market share uh, gains, but like definitely gains, uh, like in ways that we hadn't seen uh, seen before. So super interesting learnings and uh, like a lot of interesting things coming. Like we announced. Uh, Dolly 3 uh, integration into Bing Chat and uh, like a bunch of other things just uh, just last week. And so like we continue to take all of the feedback and try to improve and iterate. Uh, like that team uh, moves pretty quickly. Um, mm -hmm. And so it's been a really interesting platform for us to do a bunch of experimentation and a bunch of things that we've learned on Bing have been directly transferable to the other co-pilot products that we're building and even the API business uh, that we, um, you know, that, that's growing super fast right now. The context of this question is as we sit here on the West Coast having this conversation on the East Coast, Google is in the middle of an antitrust trial about how it might have unfairly created a monopoly in search. And a huge theme in that trial is, well, hey, Microsoft exists. If they wanted to compete, they could. We're just so good at this that they can't. Do you think Bing actually creates an edge in that race right now? I think Bing is, uh, Bing is a very good search engine. Uh, it is, uh, it's the search engine that I use. Uh, like I will tell you in all honesty, I've been at Microsoft for six and a half years. When I got there, uh, like I was still a Google search user for a while, and it got to the point where the combo of the Edge browser and Bing search, uh, just because the team is constantly grinding away, trying to improve quality, like it was uh, more than good enough to be my daily driver, like browser plus uh, Edge combo. Um, and we've seen uh, growth in market share. And I, I think the only thing that anybody can ask for is like you do high quality product work and like you want marketplaces to be fair so you can compete. And I think it's true for big companies, small companies, uh, like individuals who are trying to break through, like just whatever it is that is that notion of uh, like fairness is what everybody's asking for. And it's a complicated thing to go sort out. Like I will not comment on, you know, what's going on in, uh, you know, on the East Coast right now. Um, but just broadly the East Coast. Yeah, broadly. It will, uh, <laughs> uh, but, but, you know, I, I, I do think, yeah, we, we have to be asking ourselves all the time uh, about what's, uh, you know, what's fair and like, how can everyone participate? Uh, because that, that's the goal at the end of the day. Like we're all creating these big platforms, whether it's, you know, search as a platform, like these cloud platforms, like we're building AI platforms right now. And like, you just want to, uh, I think everybody is very reasonable in wanting to make sure that they can use these platforms in a fair way to do awesome work. I think the conventional wisdom is that an AI-powered search experience, you ask the computer a question, it just tells you a, a smart answer, or it goes out and talks to other AI systems that sort of collect an answer for you. Yep. That is the future, right? I think if you just sort of broadly ask people, what should search do? You ask a question, you get an answer, that really changes the idea of how the web works, right? This is like the, the fundamental incentive structure on the web is, is appearing in search results. Have you, have you thought about that with Bing? Yeah, I, so I think what you want from a search engine and what you're going to want from an agent is a little more complicated than just asking a question and getting an answer. Like a whole bunch of the time, what you want is you're trying to accomplish a task. And... 
you know, asking questions are part of the task, but it's, you know, sometimes like it's just the beginning, sometimes it's in the middle, like you're planning a vacation, you're doing research on, uh, you know, how to, uh, how to ring out the Ethernet cables in a house you're remodeling, like, you know, whatever it is. Uh, you know, that may involve purchasing some things or go spending some time reading like a pretty long thing because you can't get the information that you need in just some small transaction that you're having with an agent. Uh, I think it's unclear the extent to which the dynamic will actually change. Like, I, you know, I think the particular thing is everybody's worried about referrals and like, you yeah. know, how, how is this going to, you know, if the bot's giving you all the answers, uh, like what happens to referral traffic? And What's the incentive to create new content? Like, this is what I'm thinking about correct. a lot, yeah, yeah. right? If, if an AI search product can just summarize for you what I wrote in a review of the new phone. Yeah. Why would I ever be incentivized to create another review of a phone if no one's ever going to visit me directly? I don't think that's actually the thing that anybody wants. Yeah. Uh, like, it's certainly not the thing that, like, I want uh, individually. Like, there, there needs to be a healthy economic engine where people are all participating. Like, they're creating stuff and they're getting, uh, getting compensated for what they create. Now, I think the compensation structure and how things work just evolves really rapidly. And it feels to me like it's even independent of AI, things are changing very rapidly right now. Um, like how people find audience for the things that they're creating, like how people turn audience engagement into, you know, into a real business model. And like, you know, on the one hand, it's you know, it gets difficult because some of these funnels are hard to debug. Uh, like you don't really know what's going on, uh, like in an algorithm somewhere that's directing traffic to your site. And so I think that's one of the opportunities that we can have right now in the conversation about how these AI agents are going to show up in the world is it's not necessarily preserving exactly what that funnel looks like, uh, but being transparent about what the mechanics of it are so that if you're going to spend a bunch of effort or try to use it as a way to acquire audience that uh, like you at least understand what's going on, uh, that it's not arbitrary and capricious. And yeah, one day something changes that no one told you about and you no longer uh, yeah. know how to viably run your business. The, the flip side of that, right, is you also make a lot of tools that can create AI content. Yes. And you see these distribution platforms immediately being flooded with AI content. And a, something like a search engine or even training a new model yeah. being flooded with its own AI spam, essentially, leads to things like model collapse, leads to a drastic reduction in quality. How do you filter that stuff out? You know, we've got an increasingly good set of ways, at least on the model training side, to make sure that you're not ingesting low quality content uh, and, you know, you're sort of recursively getting... Is there a difference between low quality content and AI generated content? Sometimes AI generated content is good and sometimes it's not. I think it's sort of less interesting. It's kind of a technical problem, like whether or not you are, uh, you're ingesting things into your training process that are uh, causing the performance of a trained model to become worse over time. Like that, that's a technical thing. I think it's an entirely solvable problem. You know, I think the thing that, that you want in general is as a consumer of content, like you just don't want to be reading, uh, you know, a bunch of, you know, spammy AI generated garbage. Uh, like, I don't think anyone wants that. And like, I would even argue, like, I, I mean, this is an interesting thing you and I haven't uh, chatted about, but I, I think 
the purpose of making a piece of content uh, isn't this like flimsy transactional thing that sometimes people think it is. Uh, it, it is trying to put something meaningful out into the world to like communicate something that you know you you are feeling uh, or that you think is important to say, and then trying to have some kind of connection with who's consuming it. Yeah. Um, and so there's nothing about like an AI being 100% of that interaction that seems interesting to me. Like, I, I don't know why I would want to be consuming a bunch of AI-generated content versus things that you are producing. I, I feel the same way. Um, <laughs> I, I think you are almost certainly going to want to use some of these AI tools to help produce content. Uh, you know, like one of the things that I did last fall when we were playing around with this stuff for the first time is I was like, ah, oh, I've wanted to write a science fiction book since I was a teenager and like I've never been able to like just sort of get the activation energy. And I, I started to attempt doing that with GPT-4 and uh, it was terrible uh, at using it in like the, the way that you would expect. So like, you can't just go into the model and say like, hey, like, you know, here's, here's an outline for a science fiction book I'd like to write. Like, please write chapter one. But that's the model one. today, right? I think most, even if we're in the context of the writer's strike resolving, yeah. right? And even in that conversation, they were not worried about what the model's capabilities today. Right. Right, it's there will be a GPT five and a GPT six, right? But but so the the point that the and and I actually agree with that. Uh, but the point that I was making is the useful thing about the tool is it helped keep me in flow state. So I've written a nonfiction yeah. book. I never written a fiction book before. But so the useful thing for it was not actually producing the content, but when I got stuck, helping me get unstuck. Like if I had an ever present writing partner or yeah. a, a, an editor who like had infinite amounts of time to spend with me. It's like, okay, like, I don't know how to name this character. Uh, like, yeah, let me describe what they're about. Mm -hmm. Like, give me some fun names yeah. or it, so it, it was really amazing. Like the extent to which like having uh, of an, an AI creative partner helped unblock me, but it was still like, it was all my prose, all my like trying to figure out how the like plot of this book uh, ought to work. And I don't think, think it would be particularly interesting to me as a reader to consume a novel worth of content that was 100% generated by an AI with no human touch whatsoever. Like, I don't even know what that's, that's doing. We've arrived now at the nature of art, so I'm going to make a hard shift to GPUs. Yeah. Um, <laughs> this is what I mean by Kevin. <laughs> like, we can go everywhere with Kevin. Very I just want to make sure we hit all. artistic at all. Um, no, I mean, like, why, why do people make art? Is like, the AI moment has provided us the opportunity to ask that question yeah. in a serious way. Yeah. Because the internet has basically been like, to make money. And I, I think there's a divergence there as our distribution channels get yeah. flooded. I just don't know that we'll hit the answer in the next 10 minutes. Correct. We have to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Support for this show comes from Wix Studio. Debate time. Who gets more out of Wix Studio, designers or devs? First off, if you don't know about Wix Studio, it's a web platform offering the flexibility agencies and enterprises need to deliver bespoke sites hyper-efficiently. Now, back to the debate. 
designers. You can create fully responsive websites, starting with a blank canvas or choose a template for any layout and tweak per pixel with your CSS. If no code's your thing, or you just like to move fast, there's also a ton of smart features, like native no-code animations and responsive AI that adjusts every breakpoint. Devs. Wix Studio offers a powerful suite of homegrown web APIs and REST APIs. Quickly integrate, extend, and write custom scripts in a VS code-based IDE alongside an AI code assistant. Designers or developers. Search Wix Studio and find out for yourself. Support for this podcast comes from Hims. It can be challenging for men to speak about their health, and whether that's a fear of being vulnerable or just wanting to keep things private, there are just some things we would just rather keep to ourselves. Hims knows how you feel, which is why they're looking to provide you the help you need discreetly. Hims is a men's healthcare brand looking to provide simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for men. The entire process is 100% online, so you can get a new routine of improving your overall health in private. If prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and in discreet packaging. No waiting rooms and no pharmacy visits. So while it can be tough to deal with this part of your life, it doesn't mean you have to do it alone. Start your free online visit today at hymns.com slash decoder. That's H-I-M-S dot com slash decoder for your personalized treatment options. Hymns.com slash decoder. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash decoder for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. We're back talking to Microsoft CTO, Kevin Scott. The last time you and I spoke, you said something to me that I have been thinking about ever since. This man controls the entire GPU budget in Microsoft. Every dollar that flows in the GPUs, right here. Uh, well, it's not it, just me, it's, uh, but, but like, I'm the one that resolves the hard conflicts. Yeah, that's control. <laughs> uh, that's, 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 that's what that means. Uh, <laughs> Is that job getting easier or harder for you? Uh, it's, it's easier now than when we talked last time. Yeah. So we were, we were in a moment where um, I think the demand, because uh, a bunch of AI technology had ripped onto the scene in a surprising way, and demand was uh, far exceeding the supply of GPU capacity that the whole ecosystem could produce, uh, like that is, uh, that is resolving. Uh, it's it's still tight, uh, but like it's getting better every week, and we've got more good news ahead of us than than bad on that front, which is uh, which yeah. is great. Uh, it makes makes my job of uh, adjudicating these uh, very gnarly uh, <laughs> conflicts uh, less terrible. There was some reporting this week. You actually mentioned it before in the information that Microsoft is. Uh, heavily invested in smaller models that require less compute. Are you bringing down the cost of compute over time? Well, I, I think we are. And, and the thing that I will say here, you know, which we were chatting about backstage, is when you build one of these AI applications, you end up using a full portfolio model. So you definitely want to have access to the big models. Uh, but for a whole bunch of reasons, uh, if you can offload some of the work that the AI application needs to do to smaller models, like you, uh, you probably are going to want to do it. And some of the motivations could be cost, some of it could be uh, latency, some of them could be that uh, like you want to run part of the application locally because you don't want to transit sensitive information to the cloud. Like there's just a whole bunch of reasons why you want the 
flexibility to architect things where you've got a portfolio of these models. And like the other thing too is like the 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 folks at OpenAI uh, with some help from folks at Microsoft have been working furiously on uh, optimizing the big models as well. So it's not an either or, like you sort of want to, you, you want both and you want both to be getting uh, cheaper and faster and more performant and higher quality over time. Um, Can you bring down the cost of compute? Yeah. Right, I'm looking at, you know, Copilot in, in Office 365, it's $30 a seat. That's an insane price. I think some people are going to think it's very valuable, but that's not a massive market for AI pricing scheme. Can you bring that down? I think, I think we can bring the underlying cost of the AI down substantially. I mean, one of the interesting things that uh, OpenAI did this spring is they reduced the cost by a factor of 10 to developers for uh, access to the uh, the GPD-3.5 API. Uh, and so that was almost entirely passing along a whole bunch of performance optimizations. Um, so... You know, the chips are getting better price performance-wise uh, generation over generation, and the software techniques that we're using to optimize the models are, like, ringing tons of performance without compromise to quality down. And then you have these other techniques of, you know, like, how do you compose your application of, you know, small and big models that help as well. So, yeah, definitely the cost goes down, and, like, the price is, you know, just what value you're creating for people. And so, like, the market sort of sets the price, and... You know, if the market tells us that the price for these things is too high, then the price goes down. I mean, this is the first time anyone has ever priced these things, so I guess yeah. we'll find it, it, out. It, is that signal I, working for you? Yeah, like we're getting really good signal about price right now. And like I think the thing that you just said is important. Like it is, uh, it is very early days right now for uh, the commercialization of generative AI. And so you have a whole bunch of things that you've got to figure out in parallel. One of them is like, how do you price them? And like, you know, what is, uh, like, what is the market actually for these things? And like, you know, there, there's no reason to overprice things. Like the thing that you want is everybody getting value from them as many as humanly possible. Yeah. And so we'll, we'll figure that out. I think over time, when I think about compute, these big models, running tools for customers, obviously, you know, the story there is NVIDIA chips, right? It's access to H100s, it's building capacity there. They've got sort of 80% of the overall market share. How much do they represent for you? Yeah, they're, uh, like, if you look at our key AI workloads, um, like, they're, they're a substantial fraction of, uh, like, our compute. What's your relationship with NVIDIA like? Is that... Good working they, relationship. They, they are one of our m most important partners. Um, and like we work with them on a daily basis on a whole bunch of stuff. And like I think the relationship is very good. I look at uh, Amazon, Google, they're kind of making their own chips. I talked to the CEO of AWS a few weeks ago on Decoder. He didn't sound thrilled that he had this like existential dependency on NVIDIA. You know, they, they want to move to their own systems. Are you thinking about custom chips? Are you thinking about diversifying that supply chain for yourself? Going back to the previous conversation of you want to make sure that you're able to uh, price things competitively and you want to make sure that the cost of these products that you're building are as low as possible. Like competition is certainly a very good thing. Um, I, I know... Uh, like Lisa Sue from AMD is here at the conference. Uh, like we're doing a bunch of interesting work with Lisa and like I think they're making increasingly compelling GPU offerings uh, that I think are going to like become more and more important in the marketplace in the coming years. Uh, 
yeah, I think there's uh, yeah, been a bunch of leaks about first-party silicon that Microsoft is building. Like, we've been building silicon for a really long time now. So, like, wait, we, wait are you confirming these leaks? Uh, I'm not confirming anything. Um, I tried. But, 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 you know, I, I, I will say that, like, we've got a pretty substantial silicon investment uh, and that we've had for years. And the, the thing that we will do is we'll make sure that we're making the best, uh, choices for how we build these systems uh, using whatever options we have available, and like yeah. the, the the best option that's been available over the past handful of years has been uh, has been Nvidia. Uh, yeah. Like they have been. Really is that because of the processing power in the chip, or is it because of the CUDA platform? Because what I've heard from folks, what I heard from Lisa yesterday, is that actually what we need to do is optimize one level higher. We need to optimize at the level of PyTorch or training or inference, and CUDA is not the thing, and that's what NVIDIA's perceived mode is. is that, do you agree with that, that you're dependent on the chip or are you dependent on their software infrastructure or are you working at a level above Well, I, I think the industry at large benefits a lot from CUDA, which they've been investing in for a while. And so if, if your business is like, I got a whole bunch of different models and uh, you know, like I need to you know, performance tune all of them, like the PyTorch CUDA combo is like pretty essential. Like we we don't have a ton of models that we're optimizing, and so like we have a whole bunch of other tools like Triton, which is an open source tool that uh, OpenAI developed, uh, and like a bunch of other things that uh, help you basically do exactly what you said is sort of up level the abstraction so that you can be developing high performance kernels for your uh, both inference and training workloads, uh, where uh, it's easier to choose yeah. uh, like what piece of hardware you're using. And, and like it, it's the thing to remember is uh, like, even if it's just NVIDIA, like you have uh, like multiple different hardware SKUs that you're deploying in production at any point in time. And like, you want to make it easy to even optimize across all of those things. So I asked Lisa yesterday, how easy would it be for Microsoft to just switch from NVIDIA to AMD? And she told me, you should ask Kevin that question. <laughs> so here you are. <laughs> Uh, how easy right now would it be if you needed to switch to AMD? Are you working with them on anything? And how easy would it be in the future? Well, let, let, me, uh, let me deploy my finest press training <laughs> and, and say that um, if you are a API customer right now of, like you're using the Azure OpenAI uh, API or using OpenAI's uh, instance of the API, you don't have to think about what the underlying hardware looks like. Uh, it's an API. Like it's, it is presented to you to be the simplest possible way to go build an AI application on top of that API. And so... Yeah, not trivial to uh, muck around with this hardware. It's all big investments, but like the the customer shouldn't really, you know, if that's the way that you're building your AI application, you shouldn't have to care. And there are a bunch of people who are not building on top of uh, these APIs uh, where they do have to care, and then that's a choice for you know all of them individually about uh, how difficult they think it might be. Yeah. But for us, like it's a it's a big, complicated software stack, and uh, yeah, the, the only part of that that the customer sees is that API interface. The other theme that uh, you know a bunch of folks at the conference yesterday asked me to ask you about uh, is open source, right? You obviously have a huge investment in your models. OpenAI yep. has GPT. There's a lot of action around that. On the flip side, there's a bunch of open source models that are really exciting. You were talking about running models locally uh, on people's laptops. 
Is there, are these real moats around these big models right now? Or is open source going to actually just come and disrupt it over time? Yeah, I don't know whether it's even important to think about the models as moats. Um, so there, there are some things that we've done uh, and like a path forward for the power of these models as platforms that are just super capital intensive. And I, like, I don't think even if you've got like a whole bunch of breakthroughs on the software, they don't become less capital intensive. And so whether it's Microsoft or someone else, like the thing that will have to happen with all of that capital intensity, and it's like, you know, because it's largely uh, about hardware and not just software, and it's not just about like what you can put on your desktop, but you know, like you, you have to have like very large clusters of hardware to train these models. It's hard to get scale by just sort of fragmenting a bunch of independent software efforts. So I think the open source stuff is super interesting. Uh, and I think it's going to, like help everybody. Uh, like we, we've open sourced this uh, super good uh, model called Phi uh, that, uh, you know, sort of trending on hugging face uh, as of last week. Uh, um, like a bunch of open source innovation we're excited about, but like I think the big models uh, will continue to make really amazing progress uh, for years to come. I got a few more questions. If you have questions for Kevin, please start lining up. I'd love to hear from all of you. I want to make sure we talk about authenticity and metadata, marking things as real, yeah. something you and I have talked about a lot in the past. There's a lot of ideas about how you might mark content as real or mark it as generated by AI. We're going to see some from Adobe later today for sure. Have you made any progress here? Yeah, I think we have. One of the things I think we talked about before is for the past handful of years, we've been building a uh, set of cryptographic watermarking technologies and trying to work with both content producers and tool uh, makers to see how it is we can get those cryptographic watermarks like they're sort of manifest that say like you know this piece of content was created in this way by this entity uh, and like have that watermark cryptographically preserved with the content as it gets, you know, moved through, you know, transcoders and whatnot in CDNs and, you know, as you're sort of mashing it up a bunch of different ways. That might work for images. Can you do that for text? It feels like text is like a big deal, right? Text now. is a little a bunch bit, of lawsuits for te me. text is definitely harder. There are some things that are researchy that folks are working on uh, where you can, in the generation of the text, like subtly, uh, uh, like add some... Um, like a statistical fingerprint mm -hmm. to like how you're generating the text, but it's much harder than visual content where it's easy to just sort of hide the watermark in the noise in the like yeah. pixels um, and, and not have it really alter the experience you have as a user viewing the image or the video. Um, so it's, it's a tougher problem for sure. Yeah. But, but like, it doesn't mean that you can't solve it. Like you don't have to do it with cryptographic watermarks. You could also just sort of say like, Hey, we're going to adopt a set of conventions and the products that we build where, uh, like we clearly identify, uh, in the products when, uh, you have, uh, AI generated text, uh, in the met. So like with an email message, for instance, yeah. Like if you use uh, if you use Microsoft 365 Copilot to write an email, like you know, we can add uh, like a piece of text uh, to that message that says, or like even there with email. There's you, nothing you, I want more than someone yeah. sending me an email that says it was generated from AI at the bottom. Right. And I, when I think about my inbox, but, that's but, what would but, fix but, it. But, but, Hold on, we, there's like a party line of people waiting to yeah, talk to you. But, but, 
But these are all preferences. Like we, we, <laughs> we, we will have to figure out like what that line is. Oh, I know is. what my preference for those emails is. Yeah. Well, I'm going to tell Cortana to delete them right away. <laughs> Fair warning to all of you. If you write me AI, it's gone. We have to take a quick break. We'll be right back with some sharp questions from the Code Conference audience from Microsoft CTO Kevin Scott. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a PropGPod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the PropGPod wherever you get your podcasts. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We're back with Microsoft's Kevin Scott answering questions from the Code Conference audience about AI. All right, please introduce yourself. Uh, good morning, Kevin, Pam Dillon, preferably. This question is not being generated by <laughs> ChatGPT. Um, my question for you, we've been talking a lot about um, assimilating the world's knowledge in a general sense. Uh, do you think about how we're going to start to integrate specialized bodies of knowledge, yeah. uh, areas where there's real domain expertise, say, for example, in medicine or health, finance? Yeah, I mean, we, we're thinking a lot about that. And I think, you know, there's some interesting stuff here on the research front that shows that those expert contributions that you can make to the model's training data, particularly in this step called reinforcement learning from human feedback, can really substantially improve uh, the quality of the model in that domain of expertise. Uh, like we've been thinking in particular a lot about the medical applications. So uh, like one of my direct reports, uh, Peter Lee, who runs Microsoft Research, who's also a, you know, a fellow of the American Medical Association, uh, wrote a great book about medicine and GPD-4. And like there's a whole bunch of good work. And like all of that is exactly what you said. It is like how through reinforcement learning, through very careful prompt engineering, through selection of training data, you can get a model to be very high performing in a particular domain. Uh, and I think we're going to see more and more of that over time with a whole bunch of different domains. It's like re really exciting, actually. Over here, please introduce yourself. Hi, Kevin. My name is Alex. I have a question about provenance. Uh, yesterday, uh, the CEO of Warner Music Group, Robert Kinchel, was talking about his expectation that artists are going to get paid for work that is generated off of their, you know, off of their original IP. Uh, today, obviously, provenance is not given by LLMs. Uh, my question to you is, from a technical standpoint, uh, let's say that somebody asks uh, to write a song uh, that's sort of in the style of Led Zeppelin uh, and Bruno Mars. But in the generation, LLM was also using uh, music by the Black Keys because they kind of sound a lot like Led Zeppelin. 
would there be a way technically to be able to say from a provenance standpoint that the Black Keys music was used in the generating of the output so that that artist could get compensated uh, in the future? Yeah, maybe. Although, like that particular thing that you just asked, like I think is a controversial thing for human songwriters. Like I know yeah. there was this like big lawsuit with uh, Ed Sheeran about exactly this, where it's like pretty easy for like a human songwriter to be influenced in very subtle ways, uh, and like a lot of a lot of pop songs, for instance, like have a lot of harmonic uh, you know similarity with one another. So, so I, I think you, you got to think about both sides of things. It's like, you know, what, what is actual, uh, like, uh, AI aside, like, how do you measure the contribution of, like, one thing to another, uh, which is hard. And then technically, like, if we were able to do that part of the analysis, like, I think you, you probably could figure out some technical solutions. Like, it's very easy uh, to make sure that you are not having generations that are parroting. Uh, so it, it's uh, you know, it, I, either in whole or in snippets. Uh, so like that, that's possible. Um, it's a little bit more technically difficult, I think, to figure out like, you know, through this gigantic um, volume of communication or, or contribution that uh, any piece of data has, like how has that influenced a particular generation? Music copyright is like, just find me later. We'll, we'll talk about it. It's like one of my favorite things. Go ahead. Hi, Gretchen Tibbetts, DC Advisory. Rewind slightly from the question the gentleman just asked. There's been already some cases and some questions of the information from publishers, from book writers, from creators that have been used to train these models. Forget about generating music in the next, but that's been trained and asking for percentages or rights or recognition of that. Wondering, not asking you to comment on any active case, yeah. but philosophically, thoughts on that? Uh, oh, God, like we've got 25 seconds on the timer. No, no, like you're that. going longer. Don't worry, we're going to take a few more. So, so here, The clock here, can't save you now. Yeah, so here, here's, here's a thought exercise. Like, so by, by raise of hands, like how many of you have read uh, Moby Dick? So I'm guessing that all of you who raised your hand uh, like probably read Moby Dick like many, many years ago, high school, college maybe. Um, and if I ask you, uh, you could tell me um, you know, Moby Dick's about a whale, there's a captain, maybe you remember his name is Ahab, uh, like maybe he has some sort of fixation issues <laughs> that he's like focusing on this, you know, animate object. Uh, you could tell me a bunch of things about Moby Dick. Some of you who are like literature fans, like might even be able to recite a passage or two from Moby Dick, uh, you know, exactly as they appear in the book. None of you, uh, like I would wager, could, uh, if I ask you, tell me to recite verbatim the third paragraph of page 150 of the you know, Penguin Six printing of Moby Dick. These neural networks work a little bit like that. Um, so, like, they, they are not, like, not even in the way that a search engine does. Like, they are not storing the, the, the content of 
music or books or papers that people are generating, like they are ingesting some of these things. And like, I, I think everybody thinks right now, uh, and like, this is part of what we will, uh, we will determine, I'm guessing over the coming yeah. years, like everybody thinks that, uh, like all of the training that is being done right now is covered by fair use. Uh, and well, what it, some people think that. So, some people think that. Some very important people do not. So, think some that. people, and, and like that's the thing that will get sorted out. And I, I don't know the answer to that question because like it relies on judges and you know uh, lawmakers and like we'll we'll sort of figure this out as a society. Um, but uh, the the thing that the models are attempting to do isn't like they're not some gigantic repository of all of this content. Like you're attempting to build something that like your brain can remember conceptually some of these things about, uh, you know, about a thing that was present in the training. We will sort of have to see, uh, so, so like, let me just back all the way up and say like, nobody wants to, like as an author myself, like I don't want to see anyone disenfranchised, like the economic incentives uh, for people to produce content and to be able to earn a living writing books and like being, you know, like especially, you know, God forbid, like folks who sit down and do the work of writing a really, you know, thoughtful, like super well-researched uh, piece of nonfiction or someone who pours their heart and soul into writing a piece of fiction, like they need to be compensated for it. Um, and like this is a new modality of uh, you know like what you're doing with content, and like I think we we still have some big questions to ask and answer about you know exactly what's going on and like what is the you know the fair way to compensate people for uh, you know what what's going on here, and then you know what sort of what's the balance of trade is too because hopefully like what we're doing is building things that will create all sorts of amazing new ways for creative people to do what they're best at, which is like creating wonderful things that other people will consume that creates connection and like enhances the, uh, you know, this thing that makes us human. All right, we can have time very quickly for a couple <laughs> more. So just very quickly, Jay, hit me. Hi, Jay Peters with The Verge. Um, when you mentioned that you don't want to read like spammy AI-generated garbage, that made me think of this thing last month where Microsoft's MSN Network published this kind of spammy-feeling travel article that recommended a food bank as a travel destination in Ottawa. And that was made apparently in combination with algorithmic techniques, techniques with human review. So like, if something whiffs that badly with human intervention, how can we trust fully NI? AI-generated summaries. Yeah, I mean, with that particular thing, it was more, it was less about the AI and more about, like, how the human piece of that was working. Like, honestly, like, that would have been a little bit better if there had been more the AI. Uh, no, I'm not, I'm not blaming anyone. <laughs> like, I, I, I think the diagnosis of that problem is some of these things uh, on... MSN, and like I know this is true for other places, gets generated in like really complicated ways. Like this wasn't, uh, th this, it wasn't the case of like there was at some point uh, uh, a Columbia trained journalist who was sitting down writing this and all of a sudden there was now a faulty defective AI tool that was doing the thing that they used to do. Like that, that's not what was going on here. All right, very, very quickly. <laughs> all right. Uh, Dan Perkle, IDEO. Um, I had a question about an exchange you had uh, earlier about the flooding of the world with AI-generated content, and there was a discussion about quality. And in the, in the scenario you were thinking of, 
who's determining the quality of that content and how are they determining it? Because I wasn't, I wasn't quite following uh, where, where that was going. Well, I think you all are going to judge the quality of the content. Uh, if it's directed at you, you're the, you're the ultimate arbiters of, you know, is this good or bad? Is it true or is it false? Um, I mean, one of the, you know, one of the seeds I will plant with you all is um, one of the things that, this AI, that these AI tools may prove to be useful at is like actually helping navigate uh, a world where there are going to be a whole bunch of tools that are able to generate low quality content and like having your own personal like editor in chief that's helping you assemble uh, like what you think are high quality, truthful, reliable sources of information and like helping you sort of walk through this ocean of information and identify those things, uh, like, I think super useful. I think what you all are doing, by the way, like, you know, many of you in the room, I'm sure in media businesses, like, I think having all of this content out there makes your job more important, like way more important because like somebody has to have someone that they trust that has high editorial standards and who are helping uh, figure out signal and noise. And no, it's like, it's, it's absolutely true. Um, yeah. like you, All right, we got to leave it here. Yeah. All right. I'm available for a very high fee. Thank you so much, <laughs> Kevin. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah. I'd like to thank Kevin Scott for talking to me at the Code Conference. Thank the wonderful Code audience for asking some great questions. And thank you for listening to Decoder. I hope you enjoyed it. As always, I'd love to hear what you think of the show. You can email us at decoder at theverge.com. I read all the emails. Or you can hit me up directly on threads. I'm at Reckless1280. I also have a TikTok. Check it out. It's at DecoderPod. It's a ton of fun. If you like Decoder, please share it with your friends and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you really love the show, hit us with that five-star review. Decoder is a production of The Verge and part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today's episode was produced by Kate Cox and Nick Statt. It was edited by Callie Wright. The Decoder music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Our editorial director is Brooke Minters, and our executive producer is Eleanor Donovan. We'll see you next time.